and I'll just read a, a little bit. It's really to make a point. O Lord God, who inhabitest eternity, the heavens declare thy glory. The earth, thy riches, the universe is thy temple. Thy presence fills immensity, yet thou hast of thy pleasure created life and communicated happiness. Thou hast made me what I am and given me what I have. In thee I live and move and have my being. Thy presence has set the bounds of my habitation and wisely administers all my affairs. I thank thee for thy riches to me in Jesus, for the unclouded revelation of him and thy word, where I behold his person, character, grace, glory, humiliation, sufferings, death, and resurrection. Give me to feel a need of his continual saviorhood. And cry with Job, I am vile. With Peter, I perish. With the publican, be merciful to me, a sinner. And this is just an example from the Valley of Vision. Uh, I love this book. Many times reading it, I thought, I wish I could pray like that. And it is a neat kind of launch to prayer, and maybe you've used it as that, as a place to launch your own prayers from. Uh, it's tough not to read prayers from the Valley of Vision and think they know God better than I do. And, and I don't doubt that. Imagine how the disciples must have felt listening to Jesus pray. If we feel that around one of these Puritans, imagine how they felt around Jesus Jesus, as Son of God, had been communing with God the Father for eternity, enjoying et from eternity. I mean, we, we don't even have concepts for that millennia upon millennia. I mean, there's before time goes back, perfect communion with the Father. Then Jesus, as a sinless man, enjoying communion with the Father through his whole life, from the youngest age, being able to talk to God in a way that pleased him, only saying what pleased him. He knew God so much better than any Puritan, right? Imagine how the disciples felt listening to Jesus pray. And in Luke, we see lots of examples of Jesus praying in Luke 5, 16. But Jesus himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. Luke chapter 6, verse 12. It was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray. He spent the whole night in prayer to God. Luke 9, verse 28. Some eight days after these things, he took Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. Prayer is a, a focus in the book of Luke. Uh, Luke was recording for, uh, for Theophilus what had happened in the life of Jesus. And prayer is a big theme in it. And we see even from those verses there, Jesus spent a lot of time praying. One day, Jesus' disciples asked Jesus to be taught to pray by him. Lord, teach us to pray. Now, as the disciples' request go, this is a good one, right? They're not asking Jesus which of them is the greatest. They're not asking if one of them could sit at his right and left hand in glory. They're not asking if they should call down fire from heaven to destroy some Samaritans. These are the kinds of questions Jesus often got. But today they, they, they ask a good question. So when they ask Jesus to pray, he doesn't say, hey guys, wait for the valley of vision. It's going to be awesome. He doesn't unroll his uh, scroll of the book of Psalms. Instead, he teaches them how to pray. And honestly, I think the way that teaches them is different from what we would expect. 
Today we have to listen as God the Son teaches us how to pray to his Father. This is really discipleship 101. This is what it means to follow Jesus. It's no doubt why Luke includes this in his instruction to Theophilus. So as I read from Luke 1, 1 through 13 and then pray, just imagining hearing this prayer for the first time. Imagining going to Jesus after hearing him for hours praying to the Father. Seeing him, you know, you get up in, in, in the morning and there he is already. He's been up through the night praying. And you say, I want to pray like you, Jesus. And he teaches us in Luke 11, 1 through 13. If you're not already there, open your Bibles there. We'll be there this morning. Just try imagining hearing this the first time. Luke 11. It happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John also taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. Then he said to them, suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says to him, friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has come to me from a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And from inside he answers and says, do not bother me, the door has already been shut, and my children and I are in bed, I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. Verse 9. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And he who seeks finds and to him who knocks it will be opened. Now suppose one of you fathers is asked by a son for a fish. He will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Or if he has asked for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Let's pray. Father, we are uh, humbled uh, to hear Jesus teach us to pray. We thank you that Jesus is at your right hand now, interceding for us. We thank you for your spirit indwelling who intercedes for us. And we come uh, very humbled, needing to learn how to pray. We want to be pleasing to you in our prayers. We want to know your goodness. We want to know uh, to uh, trust you, to come to you humbly, independently. And Lord, like Jesus' disciples did, we just ask this morning that you teach us to pray. In Jesus' name, amen. In uh, Luke 11, 1 through 13 this morning, we're going to learn from our Lord Jesus. Really, we're going to kind of boil down from this five simple instructions regarding what and how we should pray. We're just going to look at five simple instructions about what and how we should pray. Now, as we do this, this is not everything that the Bible teaches about prayer. Maybe you've been taught to pray from the Psalms, and that's a good thing. The book of Psalms is a great primer on prayer. 
We can learn from some of the great prayers in the Bible, from Abraham and Solomon, from Daniel and even Nehemiah's short prayers. We can learn from Jesus' other teaching. Jesus has other things to say about prayer. We can learn from his example. We can learn from Paul's prayers. The Bible teaches us a lot about prayer, and yet what we see here in Luke 11 is simple enough to be taught at Pebbles, and it's more profound than any prayer class at a seminary. It's as, it's as pertinent to you if you are a new believer as it is for the elders. It's as essential for a child as for a 90-year-old saint. Jesus begins his instruction in verse 2, and he said to them, when you pray, say. Now, many of us are probably more more uh, familiar with the Lord's Prayer from Matthew 6. And as I probably read through Luke 11, 2 through 4, you're like, hey, that's kind of different than what I expected. Uh, Jesus taught his disciples to pray on multiple, multiple times. And the two prayers have some differences. And I think that kind of really helps us understand a little bit what Jesus intended here. The two prayers are different. Should they both be prayed? Should we, you know, if Jesus says, and he said to them, when you pray, say, do we have to do this word for word? And which do we put first? Do we do Luke 11, 2 through 4 first, and then Matthew 6, since they're different? Do we have to do both of them? And I, and I think even the fact that there's two of them and there's differences there shows that Jesus taught his disciples to pray in multiple, uh, at multiple times in, in slightly different ways. So when we look at this prayer, uh, we can really think of it more as a model for our prayers, as a structure. It's not a limitation of the only things we can pray for. It's not a determination of how long our prayers ought to be. And really, the rest of the prayers in the New Testament make this clear. Instead, Jesus, I think here, is giving them a guide. It's a list of priorities for their prayer. It's, it, it's a template, an outline, a reminder. And it's really a diagnostic for us to evaluate the health of our prayer life. It's good for you to evaluate as you look at the Lord's Prayer. Do I pray to whom Jesus prays? Do I pray for what Jesus teaches them to pray? Do I pray how Jesus taught them to pray? Now, I think it is important to know here that these instructions are specifically for assembled prayer. It doesn't mean that we can't use these for our private prayers, but it is specifically for our assembled prayers. As you see in uh, uh, in, in, in verse 2, when it says, when you pray, it's plural. And verse 3, give us each day our plural daily bread and forgive us our sins. And I think that that's really interesting that as we look at this, this is not just for our personal prayer. This is also going to inform how we should be praying at care group and how we should be praying as families and how we should be praying when we join with one another to pray during the week. So let's look at this first instruction here. And the first one is simple. Pray to your father. Pray to your father. Jesus begins by telling his disciples to pray to God as father. Now, there are about 15 references in the Old Testament to God as Father. Some, some, some people say that that's something that is only taught in, in the New Testament. It's not. Uh, God is referred to as Father in the Old Testament. Sometimes it's in a sense of him being the, the creator. Sometimes it's in uh, his relationship to Israel as Father or to David as the father of David's descendants, the future king. But it's 
it's never, God is never called Father except in, in, in one prayer, and that's in Psalm 89, 26. And it's very interesting because it's a messianic psalm, a psalm of prophecy. And he says, he will cry to me, you are my Father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. It is very interesting that how Jesus uh, made a distinction again and again, referring to God as my Father. He never says to the disciples together, our Father, because he had a unique relationship with the Father as God the Father to God the Son. Well, although it was uh, God was referred to about 15 times in the Old Testament as Father, in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, God is referred to as Father 65 times. In the book of John, God is referred to as Father 100 times. Now, Jews would sometimes say, oh, our Father in heaven. Jesus, beginning as he does here, Father, is different. It's not typical. And Jesus was unique in the way that he spoke about his relationship to God as Father, specifically of himself. Uh, in, in Luke 2.49, uh, when Jesus' parents went looking for him, and he says to them, why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? Uh, that was shocking. Jesus was claiming a relationship there, really, with God as his father in a way that no one recorded in scripture had ever spoken before then. I'm in my father's house. Referring to God in this intimate, eternal way, really. In Luke 10, 22, it says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son will reveal to him. Again and again, Jesus referred to God as my Father. So coming from uh, Jesus' lips to call for us to call God as Father, it shouldn't be glanced over. Shouldn't it just be kind of skipped over. We get used to that. Many of us have heard the Lord's Prayer so many times. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed. We just get used to calling, to thinking of God as Father. But Jesus, when, for, for him to instruct his disciples to call God Father, is something, uh, it's, it is unique. Jesus had been, unknowing, had been enjoying intimacy with God the Father for eternity. In his whole time as a man, Jesus had been God's beloved son with whom he is well pleased. He had known God as father in a way that no one else in human history had. No one else in all of creation had. No one else in eternity had as being part of the Trinity from father to son. But Jesus instructs his disciples to call God father. Now Jesus doesn't explain the miracle that this is here but really this is a miracle jesus says some very hard things about our relationship uh and who our father is in john 8 44 this is what jesus said to the jews you are of your father the devil and this is just not one time he says this this is an ongoing conversation he's having with them you are of your father the devil and you want to do the desires of your father he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. He says to the Jews, your father is Satan. That's pretty heavy, right? 1 John 3.10, uh, uh, John the apostle says, By this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. We all began life as children of the devil. That's 
a wild thing to say, right? That is not a popular thing to say. That's the kind of thing that gets you persecuted, really. We begin life as children of Satan. We do what he wants. How can children of Satan, who do what Satan wants, call God Father? Jesus doesn't explain that miracle here, but that is why he came. And we who've been in Romans 8 have really explored some of that miracle as we've been going through Romans 8 recently in our care groups. We've seen that because of our union with Christ Jesus through the Spirit, that we have God's Spirit in us testifying that we are the children of God. This is true of you if your faith is in Jesus Christ. If you have gone to him needy and say, I was once a children of wrath. I disobeyed you. I had no hope apart from you. I needed to be saved. I needed to be rescued. And then God gives his spirit, uniting us with his son. And now we're different. Romans 8, 14 to 16. For all who are being led by the spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. If you are in Christ Jesus, you have God's spirit in you, crying out in your hearts, Abba, Father. That is not the way that you were born. This is a miracle that's happened, that we can talk to God as Father. Now, Jesus doesn't explain all that here. He doesn't get into the fact that this is why I came. You would have no hope of talking to God as Father if I weren't here. But that's the truth. This is why Jesus came, so that we can call God Father, so that we can have a relationship with him. If we only come to God in our prayers, and I don't know what your default word for God is. Maybe it's dear God, dear Lord. Those are some of mine. It's probably Lord. We're missing out on something that, uh, something of what Jesus came to accomplish. He came to, so that we could call God Father. It's what the Son instructs us to call him. Now, I'm not saying that that's the only thing that we should call him. The Bible gives many words for God. The Psalms are full of those. But we're missing out if we don't talk to God as Father. That's what the Spirit indwelling us testifies. This is how we should come to Him. This is, this is a miracle because of what Jesus has done. Can you call God Father? Not just because He's your Creator, but because He's rescued you. Because he's adopted you. Have you been reconciled to him? Or are you still at odds with him? Are you able to call him father? That is why Jesus Christ came. So that you could be adopted as his children. If he's your father, listen to Jesus' instruction. Practice calling him by that name. It's how you will call God for eternity. Now, I'm not saying we won't call God other things too, but we will know him as father forever and ever, forever. His son, Jesus Christ, will be there. We'll be forever Jesus' brothers. Not that we'll be deified as Jesus is. You know, uh, 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 Jesus was very clear to say uh, after he rose from the dead, I ascended my father and your father, my God and your God. You know, Jesus still made a distinction. My father is your father, but in a different way. 
But we get to know him as father. And just imagine how rich that's going to be for eternity, getting to know him as father in a sweeter and sweeter way. As we see his holiness and, and, and see Jesus there and see the great cost that it took so that we could have this relationship as father. So when Jesus instructs us that we should pray to our father, we have to pray to our father. We're missing out if we don't pray to him as father, if we're not getting to know him more as father. Jesus instructs us to whom we should pray to our father. And then he begins instructing us next and what to pray for. And that's instruction two. We should pray for your father's glory. Pray for your father's glory. We see that in verse 2. Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. And that's really what binds those two ideas together there. It's really about our Father's glory. When it says, hallowed be your name, uh, God's name is a summary statement for who he is. It's his name summed, it's all of who he is, all of his attributes summed up in his name. It's kind of, I think, a little bit like how when someone see, sees a flag of the United States, it symbolizes United States, right? It's why some people are so offended when the flag is burnt. It's, it's, it's defaming everything that the U.S. is. That flag symbolizes, it epitomizes the whole thing. The name of God symbolizes all that he is. It's his whole character summed up in his name. It's the way that people perceive him, his honor, his, his, the, 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 the reputation that he has. So when Jesus says, Father, hallowed be your name, he teaches us to pray, hallowed, hallowed be God's name. May God's name be treated as holy. May it be sanctified. May it be set apart. The request here, when he says, hallowed be your name, is that all people everywhere would treat God the way that he deserves. That they would recognize God's value. That they would live in a way that is appropriate. That they wouldn't bring to God a bad name. The opposite of his name being hallowed or treated as holy is defaming God. It's lying about God. It's blaspheming God. It's swearing using God's name. It's sinning. Really, sinning is simply not hollowing God's name. It's treating him as less than he is. It's lowering him. It's disrespecting him. It's treating him as he's some kind of trivial thing whose laws don't need to be followed. A creature rather than the creator. When we say, hallowed be your name, we're praying for the exaltation of God's name. For his fame, for his honor, for his glory to the whole earth. That's what we say when we pray, hallowed be your name. We want everyone to know how great this God is. And that's tied closely with your kingdom come. And that's the second part of praying for God's glory. The first part of the request is, hallowed be your name. Second part is, your kingdom come. It's the desire for God's reign to be manifested among men. God has always reigned, but his reign always hasn't been visible. He's always been sovereign, but people haven't always submitted to his reign. When Jesus came, he brought God's kingdom with him. God's kingdom begins to spread spread in people's hearts. We see that in Luke 17, uh, verse verse, uh, 20 and 21. Now, having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming... 
Jesus answered them and said, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there it is. For behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. As people repented and put their faith increasingly in Jesus, God's reign spread in people's hearts. The kingdom continues to grow with Jesus now in heaven reigning, where he's now glorified. Jesus told his disciples that some of them would see the kingdom of God when they saw him glorified. We saw that in Luke 9.27. The kingdom, though, is going to culminate with God's reign on earth. We see that in Luke 22, verse 18. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. Some people have said that the theme of the Bible is the kingdom of God. It's definitely a huge theme of the Bible. It's about God who reigned perfectly on earth, reestablishing his reign on earth. So when we pray for God's kingdom to come, we're praying for Jesus to be glorified as more and more people submit to him in repentance. When we pray for his kingdom to come, we are praying that there be a universal acknowledgement of God's right to rule. That there would be a universal willing submission to God's laws. That there would be eager worship around Jesus' throne. That there would be justice for the oppressed. That there would be banishment of what God hates. Zechariah 14.9 says, And the Lord will be king over all the earth. And that day the Lord will be the only one, and his name the only one. Isn't that, I'm going to read that again. Zechariah 14.9, And the Lord will be king over all the earth. And that day the Lord will be the only one, and his name the only one. And that's what we are praying for when we pray, thy kingdom come. We're eager for that to be true here now. And when we pray for our Father's glory, our hearts are oriented to what's most valuable. Our hearts are motivated by what is most essential. When we pray that way, it's the overflow of a heart that is seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness. It's the expression of a heart that is jealous for God to have the glory he's due. It's the heart that trusts that God's total dominant reign is for our best. It's a heart that's sensitive for our remaining wickedness, for the way that we still sin and displease him, and the way that we live in a world full of displeasure, and we're eager for it to be cleansed. It's a heart that is eager for the return of Christ. When we pray for his glory, for his name to be hallowed, and for his kingdom to come, our desires are prioritized. It comes first here in this prayer that Jesus teaches disciples because it has to come first in our hearts. Now, when we mean this prayer, when we pray this, it's going to come at a cost to us. Right? It's going to come at the cost of our freedom and our pleasures. It's going to come at the cost of our finances, the cost of our reputation, the cost of our sons and daughters going to the mission field, right? When we pray, God, your kingdom come, we're saying, I'm all in. I want you to be glorified over all the earth. I'm going to do whatever it takes. This is my prayer. Use me, Lord, so your kingdom comes. Jesus, come quickly. Does your love For the Father overflow in a passion to see his name honored and his rules obeyed? Do the prayers you pray and the choices you make hollow his name? Do they treat him as holy? Are you eager for the old to be destroyed and the new kingdom to be ushered in? 
Or are you clinging to this age, kind of going in begrudgingly a little bit? Like, oh, I'm thankful to be saved, but I really love stuff here. Are you home? Or are you homesick? We should be homesick, right? Eager for that kingdom to come. When you pray this way consistently, as Jesus taught us, when you pray this way dependently, as Jesus taught us, your heart, your desires, your actions are going to follow. Make your Father's glory your priority in prayer. And in a sense, you could almost just stop here, right? Right? Like, like, like this is a good prayer. But God, the Son, doesn't stop here. He, he, gets, he gets real personal with this. He knows that we're creatures. He knows that we're sinful creatures, that we're needy. And so he teaches us to pray to the Father. He teaches us to pray for the Father's glory. But he also teaches us to pray for your needs. Pray for your needs. And that's the next instruction. Pray for your needs. Jesus could have left us praying for the big picture. But he wants us to come to him like children, to come to their father. It's good for us to express constant neediness. Um, and one of the neatest chapters in the Old Testament, I think, is, 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 is Deuteronomy 8. And in Deuteronomy 8, and really, if, if you haven't read it recently, I'd encourage, encourage you to read it, particularly if you're going through a time of testing. Uh, just God is explaining to Israel why he led them through the wilderness, why he fed them with manna. In Deuteronomy 8, 3, it says, He humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. That's why God brought them through this wilderness testing, so that they would be dependent, so that they would understand, hey, I need food today. Did God give us manna again? You go out and say, yeah, God gave us manna again. That's the kind of attitude that God wants us to have in our prayers. We are to come to him with our physical needs. We see that in verse 3. Give us each day our daily bread. We are to ask God to give us food. Indeed, keep asking daily. We're not just to scamper trying to make ends meet when we're out of work or when the budget is tight at the end of the month. You guys know what that's like. You're just working really hard just to pull it all together, doing everything you can to scrape by. We're not just to do that. Neither are we to kind of sit back comfortable in the size of, the, of our bank account or the food that we have in the pantry. I think for many of us as Americans, this is a strange thing to pray. We're praying for tomorrow's food, today's food, when our pantry's full of food. So whether you have surplus or absence, we're to come to God dependently for our, for our provision. We're to come dependently for our provision. In so doing... We express that we're relying on his generosity to us, and not our own strength and not on our ab ability. So do you daily pray for the Lord to provide? Are you aware that the food you go home and, and eat is going to come from his hand? That if he weren't generous, if he were tight-fisted, you'd be destitute? You would have no food for lunch? Do your kids hear you pray for daily food? Do they know where that food comes from? 
doesn't come from hard-working dads. It comes from God the Father. We're to come to him with our physical needs. We're also to come to him with our spiritual needs. We see that first spiritual need in verse 4. And forgive us our sins. We need the Lord's forgiveness to maintain intimacy with him. Now, this is not about how we become God's children. We know that we become God's children through believing the gospel. When we come to him in faith, when we come to him repenting, put all of our hope in Jesus Christ alone, that is how we become God's children. That's how we're adopted as as his children. But that doesn't mean that we don't need to keep our ongoing relationship right with him. We can have our communion with him broken by our sin. When we don't hollow his name, when we exalt ourselves as king of our time, when we exalt ourselves as king of our mouths and our bodies and our pocketbooks, and we have to go to him and say, Lord, I'm sorry. I valued something more than you. Will you forgive me? We know in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, we need, and, and, and Jesus knows us. He knows that we're forgetful, that we forget that we need food from God the Father, and he knows that we forget to ask him for forgiveness. The interesting part here is what ne- comes next in verse 4. And forgive us our sins, for we also, for we ourselves also forgive everyone who's indebted to us. Forgive us, God, because we forgive others. Does that scare you a little bit? Doesn't that sound like work salvation some? Forgive us because we do this? We trust that Jesus got it right. Maybe we'd like to hear it say, God, forgive us because you're gracious. Or Forgive us because Jesus died for my sins. Forgive us because Jesus is interceding for me. He's my propitiation. But Jesus taught us to pray. Forgive us our sins, for we ourselves also forgive everyone who's indebted to us. And I think what Jesus wants us to do here is to testify how much we value forgiveness. See, when you're forgiven by God, you're transformed by him. You've been taught by him. You've been humbled by him. And now we're different people, right? We're repenting people. We're not people who hold grudges. We're not hard-hearted people. We're not bitter people. We're different. We have got Christ's spirit inside of us. We value forgiveness of our sins so much that we would never forgive someone else. How can we who've been forgiven by God hold a get grudge against our brother or sister who sinned against us? Really, I think what he's doing here is, is, is saying, forgive us, God, because we're repentant. We're, we are going to keep obeying. We're going to keep forgiving. We understand and value how you have forgiven us. When you don't forgive someone, there is something very scary about your relationship with God. When you are unwilling to forgive, there is something very scary about your relationship with God. And don't take my words for that, uh, you, you would know the uh, uh, parable of the unmerciful steward. How the, and, and, and Jesus tells this parable in Matthew 18. Where he owed 10,000 talents. Millions and millions of dollars. And that debt was forgiven to him by his master. But for his servant who, who, who owed him about 100, day, 100 days wages. He doesn't forgive him. So the master calls the servant together. We see this in Matthew 18, 32 to 35. Then summoning him. His Lord said 
to him, you wicked slave. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. Then Jesus draws out what this is about. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Wow. Jesus is showing us that there is something powerful about forgiveness. And the way that we forgive others shows something powerful about whether we've been forgiven by God. If you have been forgiven by God, you must forgive others. So much so that Jesus says, he teaches us to pray, forgive us our sins, for we ourselves also forgive everyone who's indebted to us. We go to God saying, Lord, I am blameless in this. I have forgiven everyone who has sinned against me. I'm not holding any grudges against anyone. I so value forgiveness from you. I understand the high cost that you put on my forgiveness. I will not hold a grudge against someone else. Are your sins being forgiven? Are you looking for generosity from God while bleeding your brothers and sisters in Christ dry? You won't be forgiven by God while you're coddling a grudge. Okay? We need to make our relationships right with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Jesus points out the danger, the danger of coming to him, really in prayer to ask for forgiveness and not forgiving others. Speaking of danger, in a, we, we, we see another aspect of our spiritual need at the end of verse 4, and lead us not into temptation. The word for temptation has a range of meanings. It can mean a temptation where you're tempted to sin. It could also mean more broadly a testing, a situation that reveals character. We know that God doesn't tempt. God hates sins, right? He doesn't tempt us. He doesn't dangle something in front of us and say, doesn't that sin look appealing? Don't you want a little bit of that sin? Is God like that? No, James 1.13 says, Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. He is sovereign, though, over the situations in which we are tempted. He was sovereign through the situations that Job went through when his whole life was stripped away. In Job 1.12, the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has in your power. All that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. He allowed Job, his, his life to be decimated, really. His body to be decimated. In Luke twenty two thirty one to 32, Jesus says to Simon Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Some of the same idea there that Satan wanted to do with Job. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. So there we see that God was sovereign over Satan, testing, trying. Peter, Jesus himself, listen to Luke 4, 1 through 2. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness. God the Spirit led God the Son 
Jesus Christ in the wilderness while what? For 40 days being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they had ended, he became hungry. No one else in human history has been tempted like Jesus was tempted. No one has been tried like Jesus was tried. He knew what it was like to be tempted, tested, and tried. So having been led, he encouraged us to pray. Lead us not into temptation. Jesus had become man. He knew what it was to be tempted. And so he tells us to pray. Pray to the Father. Father, lead us not into temptation. We should act Ask God to protect us from more than we can bear, from more than we can't bear. From situations where we would fall into sin, where we'd be tempted to dishonor him. This is a prayer of humility. Why don't we pray this way? Because we're not humble. We should know our tendency to disloyalty. When we pray this way, we recognize that we're totally dependent upon his wise, gracious leading. That he has hard things planned for some of you this day. He knows what you're going to be tempted with. And we should go to him and say, Lord, if, if, if you let me be tempted more than I can handle, I'm going to fall apart. I'm going to dishonor you. I'm going to bring shame to your name. Lord, I need you to protect me from disobeying you. What a prayer of humility and of dependence. Now, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13 says, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common in man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. God will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape. God is willing for you not to sin, not to fail that time of trial, that time of testing. But are you humble to go to him and say, Lord, protect me, rescue me, keep me from falling away from you. Don't give me anything today that I can't glorify you in. Jesus himself being tempted, he knew he knew temptation more than anyone. And so he t- teaches us to pray, lead us not into temptation. These prayers for physical and spiritual needs, uh, and it's important to remember, are corporate prayers, right? These are not just individual prayers. It's not just for us. It is, if you're married, for you and your spouse, for you and your family, for your care group, for the church. These are the kinds of things that we should be praying for. Sometimes on Sunday morning, during the time of prayer before service. On time of prayer Sundays. God, protect us from from situations where we won't please you. Protect us, Lord. Jesus taught his disciples who to pray to, what to pray for. And he taught them how they should pray. He taught them how they should pray. We see that in Luke Uh, 11 verses 5 through 8, he taught them how to pray, and they should pray with desperate boldness. They should pray with desperate boldness. Then he said to them, suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says to him, friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has come to me from a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. Of course, this is a very different world here, right? Uh, there's, there's, there's no grocery stores open. Uh, the pantries are not full of food. Bread is a common ingredient. The, 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 uh, uh, the main portion of the meal. There's also hospitality requirements that are very different here. 
right? If someone comes to your house in the middle of the night, you probably have enough food for them. Uh, you probably can make them a peanut butter sandwich or give them a banana, and they'll be fine in the morning, and it's no big deal, really. Uh, but in their ancient world, it would be a thing of shame and dishonor to not treat this guest who comes in the middle of the night with a meal. It, it was important. It was really a need for them. And so this friend goes to his other friend for food in the middle of the night. And he knows that his friend is sitting in this probably this one-room house. He's got some, he's not just got, got a deadbolt on the door, some kind of clunky wooden bar through metal rings. It's going to be loud. He's in bed with his kids because the whole family is just a one-room house. It's going to be distracting. The kids are going to wake up. They're going to be crying. But the friend goes anyways. The friend goes because he's got this responsibility for this friend who came, who came in, in, in the middle of the night. I think if you can imagine this, imagine one of your heroes coming to your house in the middle of the night and you have absolutely nothing. And he's walked a long way to get to your house. He's hungry in the middle of the night. Maybe it's your favorite musician, your favorite athlete, Hall of Fame athlete, your favorite radio preacher in the middle of the night and you're like i don't really care who i bother i'm gonna go and get food for this person who showed up in my house in the middle of the night i'm going to give them something to eat and so that's what he does well the friend inside is not really such a good friend from inside he answers and says don't bother me the door has already been shut my children and i are in bed i cannot get up and give you anything verse eight i tell you even though he will not get up and give him anything because he's his friend kind of sad, right? He's not really that good of a friend. He's like, I don't really care if you're my friend. My, my kids are asleep. But because of his persistence, he will get up and give him so much as he needs. Now, that word for persistence there, and, and, and you'll see, in, and, and I think in all of your Bibles, uh, there will be a note for another word. And in mine, it is, it is it's, it's sh- his shamelessness, his boldness, his desperateness, his I don't care attitude. I have to have this for my friend. And that's really what the idea here is. It's not really persistence as much as shamelessness, boldness. And like that's why I talk, talked about here, a bold desperateness. Now, Jesus is arguing here and saying, if this bad friend, and this is a bad friend, he doesn't really care about his friend. He's like, my kids are asleep, go away. But this friend who's not a great friend is going to respond to this shameless ask from the person knocking on his door. How much more is God going to respond when we go to him with desperate boldness, when we go shamelessly before him? I don't mean not humble, but when we go desperate and say, God, I need this. Do not lead me into temptation, Lord. Please provide our daily needs. Please forgive my sins. The Lord is going to do it because he's good. God, our Father, is going to respond. We know he's going to answer. So have you been going to him with desperate boldness for his name to be hollowed in your life, for him to be treated as holy by you, for his kingdom to spread in Orange County, in Malaysia, in the Czech Republic? Have you been going to him with desperate boldness for your needs to be met, for you not to be tested beyond what you can bear? These are the kinds of requests we need to bring to him again and again with boldness. We need to pray with desperate boldness, and we need to pray with confidence. Our last instruction, we need to pray with confidence. We need to pray with confidence. 
Now, it, 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 it's, it, it is tempting here really to, to see verses 5 through 13 as, 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 as one big idea. I don't want to make too fine of a distinction between desperate boldness and, and confidence. Uh, but I think both ideas are here and are meant to be here. Jesus' promises here are very simple. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Go, ask, seek, do something. Venture, pray, beg. Jesus' reasoning here is really simple in verse 10. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. Now, of course, we're going to wonder, what can be prayed for this way? Is this a blank check? Can I ask for anything and, and receive it? Can I get whatever I want? I think Jesus has already given us the line items of this budget, right? He's already told us the kinds of things we should be praying for. It's praying for his name to be hallowed and his kingdom to come and for our needs to be met and our sins forgiven. For us not to be led into temptation. Jesus' point in 11, 9 through 13 isn't really here. He's, he's not really getting into everything and what it means to pray according to his will or to pray in his name or to let his will, let God's will be done. He's not really putting boundaries of what we should and shouldn't pray for. He's simply saying that God is willing to answer. Jesus Christ promises God is willing to answer. Pray his way according to his will and he will answer. This is the kind of good God that we have. He is a good father. He's not a bad friend. He's a good father. And he explains more of that. Now, I suppose one of you fathers is asked by his son for a fish. He will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Or if he's asked for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion, will he? You can imagine this nightmare scene. You know, just horrifying. You know, open up a happy meal for your kids. They sit down and inside is full of writhing snakes and snapping scorpions. Your kids will be scarred by life. They would, they, they would really question whether you're a good dad. That is not the father that God, who, who God is, that Jesus has brought us to. It's, it's an argument here from lesser to greater. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? If you, then being evil, if you as sinful people know how to give good gifts, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Now, I know that we're kind of sur surprised there. Uh, in the Matthew version, it talks about God giving good, good, good gifts. Here, Jesus just goes all the way and says, give the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit uh, and... Uh, And I really am running out of time. I kind of knew that was going to happen. You know, to summarize, what is this gift of the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit reminds us of Jesus' teaching, indwells believers uniting us with Christ, seals us, guaranteeing us for the day of redemption. We have the mind of the Spirit so we can be pleasing to God, working the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, interceding for us, testifying to us that we are God's children, 
This is the gift of the Spirit. This is and the reality of our union with Christ, with the Spirit blessing us in such a way that we can live a life pleasing to God, that we are sealed waiting for our, our redemption, the Spirit teaching us that God is our Father, interceding for us, giving us new life. Jesus is reasoning here, if God the Father is willing to give, so, so you can ask good things from God because he is willing to give his spirit to you. He is willing to live among sinful, whole, I mean, sinful people. That is amazing how good God's gift is. Now, Jesus gave this instruction to the disciples before Pentecost. The Holy Spirit was given at Pentecost. Now we can look back and say, with amazing proof, with amazing proof, God is willing to give good gifts. We have His Spirit indwelling us now. We serve a good Father. He is not the kind of Father who gives scorpions and snakes. He is a God, the Father, who gives good gifts, and we can come to Him with confidence. We don't have to be afraid of answered prayers. We don't have to be afraid of God's will. God gives good gifts. We can pray to Him as Father. We can pray to our Father for His universal glory and our daily needs. We can pray to our Father in desperate boldness and confidence. Is the goodness of your Father compelling you toward His throne in prayer? Are you so confident of God's goodness that He gave you His only Son? That He's given His Spirit to indwell you? That you can say, of course I'm going to pray to the Father. Jesus knew the goodness of God more than anyone else from all eternity. God's goodness has been His delight and this is why Jesus prayed so much. He wasn't afraid of his father. His father, he knew his father was good. So he loved to pray to the father. God is good enough to give his spirit. God is good enough to give his son. God is good. Will you pray to him? Will you pray to him as father? Will you pray to him for his name to be hallowed? Will you pray for his kingdom to come? Will you pray for your daily bread? Will you pray for your sins to be forgiven as you forgive others? Will you pray, lead us not into temptation? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that it is through your son, Jesus Christ, that we can talk to you as father. Thank you that we are no longer to trusted in you, children of Satan. We're no longer objects of wrath. We have this amazing gift of being your children. And we will be forever your children. And we can talk to you as Father. It is our desire that your name be hallowed. That you be treated as holy by us by our families, by our children who don't yet know you, by the city. It is our desire for your kingdom to come. Lord Jesus, please come quickly. Come and establish your reign. And until then, please, may our homes be outposts of your kingdom. May our time in the car when we're driving 
be an outpost of your kingdom. May our relationships at work demonstrate that we are your children. Father, give us lunch today. Give us dinner tonight. Give us homes in which to sleep. Father, forgive us of so many sins and selfishness and pride and impatience and unwillingness to come to you and lack of belief in your goodness. Father, lead us not into into temptation. We would fall away if it weren't but your grace working in our hearts. Father, if you let any more opportunity in our lives, we, we're totally aware that we could fall away in so many ways. Father, you are wise and you're good and you know how much to put, um, how, how, how high to turn up the fire trials in our life. We pray, Father, that you don't burn us any more than is good for us to refine us. Lord, watch over that process as you do try us, as you tempt us, test us, as you allow us to be tempted. Please, Lord God, help us to persevere. Oh, Father, we thank you that we can pray to you through your Son, Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.